Hello, I'm Eugene Chausovsky, a senior Eurasia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. strong desire in Washington to punish Turkey and to make an example of it. And I don't think necessarily the Turks see the storm coming. Welcome to the Stratfor podcast from Stratfor.com. I'm Emily Hawthorne, and I focus my analysis on the Middle East and North Africa. Turkey has captured its share of international headlines in the last 12 months, even before its invasion of northern Syria in October. The Turkish economy has been struggling for some time, and internal politics have been tumultuous. These are just a couple of the issues that the country has been facing. Joining me now to discuss the significance of Turkey's internal political situation and how it could change over the next year and affect global geopolitics is Sinan Jiddi. He's an expert on Turkish domestic politics and foreign policy, an adjunct professor at Georgetown School of Foreign Service, and a contributor to Stratford Worldview. Welcome, Sinan. Thank you for having me, Emily. Good to be here. I wanted to start, it's it's already been a pretty notable year for Turkish politics. I wondered if you could just kick us off by talking about the impact um, and sort of the importance of the local elections that happened earlier this year. That's a great starting point, yes. These are the first local elections in Turkey that basically showed us that the Governing Justice and Development Party, which has been in power since 2002, and with President Erdogan in the, at the helm of the country since approximately 2003, significantly weakened at the local level, losing major cities, um, including Istanbul, Ankara, uh, but not limited to those, very much across the country. And it seemed to be an indicator for the political establishment that is the AKP, seeming to lose power uh, and, and, and the will of the people, which it has held on to for so long. And even prior to the 2002 takeover of power by the AKP, the Islamist movement in Turkey had been in power in a lot of these urban cities since the mid-1990s. So it seems to suggest, or the local election seems to suggest to, to analysts and scholars of Turkey, the AKP may be in a position where its power is very much in decline and that it's losing the, the trust uh, of, of the voters. Do you think that this reflects more of a change in Turkish society or is there some sort of notable change that's happening in terms of how the Turkish political opposition is changing? I mean, we did see some interesting fair-weather alliances leading up to this election, and there's always a question of how some of those alliances between parties. Do you see anything changing with respect to the Turkish opposition, or is there something else happening in Turkey right now that could account for why this was such a notable year for the AKP in the local elections? Yeah, I mean, this is very hard to sort of read. I mean, uh, and again, it's a very good question. The way I look at this is, you know, Turkey's gone through so much transition, as you've alluded to. I mean, we've had a change of regime type in Turkey from parliamentary to presidential. That's kind of unique to Turkey. We have seen change in the sense that the governing AKP has is up against the wall for the first time when it really is fighting for its electoral life. And it's never really had to do that. And it was also this government change from parliamentary to, to, to presidential that was inaugurated post-2017. you know 2017. 
was essentially designed to avoid the notion or the necessity to build alliances so that they could have a stronger unified government that didn't rely on coalition building. And the total opposite has happened. And it seems to be having an impact across the board. On the incumbent side, I don't think we'd be wrong to say that President Erdogan and the governing AKP could have sustained power in, in the way that they have without relying on electoral alliances with the nationalists uh, in parliament, simply because in order to have a parliamentary majority, the AKP needed the support of the nationalists. And, and, and similarly, on the side of the opposition, when you look at the main opposition Republican People's Party, the party of Kemal Atatürk, you know, they've always struggled electorally since the 1970s. But they really couldn't have succeeded in gaining the electoral victories that we just talked about in, in, the, in these years' local elections without the tacit and implicit support of the Kurdish Democratic People's Party, people or People's Democratic Party, as, as it's known in Turkey. So it's been a year of alliances and alliance making, which with each side essentially having to rely on another in order to sort of buoy and, and, and float their political uh, position in order to maximize their standing in parliament and, and for local government too. So it is having an effect because tinkering with, with the political regime type that Turkey is in that was sort of supposed to provide the AKP with a strong hold or guarantee a strong presence in parliamentary power is nothing without a coalition. And the problem is even more augmented at the level of Erdogan and the presidency. Now, in order to become president, which is now the most powerful position in the country, you need 50% plus one vote. That is becoming extremely difficult for Erdogan. In the last round of presidential elections, Erdogan just managed to clinch that. And given the le level of economic downturn the country's experienced, the number of uh, foreign entanglements and the Syria incursion and proposed sanctions by the United States without alliance or some sort of strategic uh, reliance on the nationalists or other sort of un uh, here to unknown sort of entities in parliament or beyond. H how does Erdogan retain power in the future? So alliance building and coalitions, although they want to be avoided by Erdogan and the AKP, are right back in the you know, front and center stage uh, going forward. You allude to something really important about nationalist policy in Turkey and one of the places where it's it's often really hard outside of Turkey to understand the Turkish government's decision-making, specifically the decision-making of President Erdogan and his Justice and Development Party, understanding the fact that President Erdogan does have to rely on those the nationalists in that alliance that he's in right now with the MHP party, understanding how continuing to encourage nationalist policies is critical for his success moving forward. I think that's a really, really important thing for people to understand when they're trying to understand the motivations for Turkish policy, including things like the most recent military operation in northern Syria, um, but yeah. also things like oil and gas exploration in disputed waters off the coast of Cyprus or right. stoking nationalist rhetoric about different issues across the whole Middle East. I wonder if you could speak a little bit more about how that kind of nationalist rhetoric plays in Turkey and whether we should expect to hear more of the same from Erdogan in, in the near and medium term future. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the keys to the kingdom um, in terms of understanding how the political sort of establishment in Turkey is, is maneuvering itself. Because I would say since the mid 2010s, roughly about 2012, 2013, the name of the game for the Erdogan administration or regime in Turkey has been regime survival. Right. For a variety of reasons, whether it was the corruption allegations that surfaced, whether it was the conflict with with the Gulen movement, uh, the coup attempt of 2016, 
and also an aiding economy. All of this has strained the ability of the government to maintain electoral alliances and its hold on to power at home. So, you know, Erdogan has basically looked at various means of actually sort of strengthening and maintaining his platform. And one of those is, is, is actually nationalist sort of outreach. And this is where you start to sort of see the confluence of foreign policy and domestic policy, but more specifically where foreign policy is basically put to the service of regime survival and domestic politics, which isn't something unique to Turkey or Erdogan. A lot of regimes engage in this. Some prior you know, examples would be, for example, the first thing that always came to my mind was you know, the Thatcher government relying on taking back the Falklands in the early 1980s when, when the Thatcher government was going to get up against the wall basically using a national emergency to sort of buoy, uh, inflate nationalist sentiment. And Erdogan has been a master of this. Turkey has had no shortage of animosity and troubles with its Kurdish question from the perspective of security, from the perspective of human rights, from the perspective of democratization in the country. But one thing that you know politicians have consistently relied on is you can agitate and you know galvanize votes around you if you demonize and securitize the issue of Kurdish politics and say, essentially, the country is up against the ropes. Uh, we need to essentially ensure the end of terrorism and, and, and security threats presented to our country. And so a strong move against Kurdish entities inside of Turkey, or even now the Kurdish offensive in Syria that has just taken place, is one way which voters very, very may identify with. It is very hard for anybody in Turkey who believes in Kurdish rights to essentially make a point of this. Even the political opposition in Turkey can't come out and openly criticize the government or the Syria operation or any sort of security policies against the Kurdish minority simply because there's so much public support for it. The other perfect example you cited is, is exactly oil and gas exploration off the coast of Cyprus. Yes, it's disputed and Erdogan understands the risks of this. But again, this plays very, very popular at home vis-a-vis his domestic constituencies. Even if they're not Erdogan supporters, people believe passionately in Turkey that due to lack of fossil fuels domestically produced, that Turkey has somehow been um, denied its natural rights uh, off the coast of Cyprus to explore hydrocarbons. Simply just, you know, in my opinion, from a great extent, it, it's a fantasy, but it resonates very highly. And Erdogan is seen to be a man that is doing something about it. He's challenging, quote unquote, the sort of the imperial uh, powers of the world to sort of secure Turkey's own rights. So there's all sorts of data out there, just to give you one example that, you know, there is over 70 to 80 percent public approval for the Kurdish invasion or incursion into Syria. So that is hard, very hard to essentially sort of take a policy or a stand against, be it dissidents or be it centrist political parties who want to, you know, differentiate with the government. We'll get back to our conversation about Turkey in just a moment, but I wanted to take this opportunity to talk to you about Stratfor Worldview. As the world's leading geopolitical intelligence and forecasting firm, Stratfor separates fact from fiction to provide critical information for our subscribers. Unlike any publicly available source, Stratfor Worldview looks not just at what's going on and why it matters, but at what's going to happen next. That's Stratfor's mission, to let you know what happens next. Stratfor delivers intelligence, period. And with everything going on right now in the world, more than ever, it's time for intelligence. If you're not already a Stratfor member, I encourage you to check it out. And right now, there's a special subscription rate for podcast listeners. Go to stratfor.com. I hope you'll be pleased. So this pressing into nationalist policies and nationalist rhetoric, this also feeds into the often tumultuous relationship between Turkey and the United States. How do you see U.S. and Turkish relations moving forward? And, and I know in some ways that's a, 
a million dollar question. Yeah. And at Stratfor, we, we talk pretty often internally about how the U.S. and Turkey both have aspects of their relationships that they really value in terms of uh, security partnership. Turkey does need some of its economic and, and financial ties with the United States. Um, of course, those ties with Europe that Turkey has are, are far more important to it than, than with the United States. But there's also significant friction in the relationship. And it just seems like there are headlines after headlines that focus on yet another sort of rupture in the relationship. How do you see the U.S.-Turkey relationship moving forward? Yeah, I think for, the, for our followers who sort of have seen our coverage, be it columns or actual significant analysis over the last couple of years, and we'll, we'll see that it, it's been a challenge for all of us, I think. The way I'm starting to sort of see this, you know, it mirrors the increasingly deteriorating relationship that the United States has had previously with Pakistan. Initially beginning with mistrust over threat perceptions, then sort of domestic political consideration on, and, and pressures faced by the Pakistani government at the time. And in, in the case of Turkey, you know, Turkey having different threat perceptions and, 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 and strategic goals in the area, absence of the United States within the Syria front, but also just following the Arab Spring, role on clarity and, and, and commitment towards the Middle East, I think has all driven a wedge between where Turkey and the United States stand together. Absent a strong economic relationship to bring the, or maintain the relationship and an increasingly different number of avenues where both countries differ on, on security roles, uh, priorities, regional aspirations, then you see the essential relationship becoming very, very stuck and, and drawn apart. And Turkey has made some very poor choices on its part. And the United States has also, I think, made some short-term tactical uh, choices, which has resulted in Turkey basically taking, which has resulted, I think, at a very fundamental level, what I would call a complete lack of trust and loss of trust between the two countries, which I think is the most significant development between Turkey and the United States. The, the two countries have had a, some sort of strategic partnership since the onset of the Cold War. We've had our ups and downs, right, uh, whether it was the Cuban Missile Crisis, the, the Cyprus affair in, in, in the 1960s and 1970s on numerous other issues in the Balkans, perhaps how to respond to initial um, aspects of the Arab uprisings. But at this point, since the beginning of the Syrian civil war, what is most different about all of this is Turkey and the United States fundamentally don't trust each other at the level of the executive, and they've lost trust on the level of institutions. There are very few people now, as compared to the past, in institutions like the US State Department, the Department of Defense, that actually has a trust and workable relationship with, with Turkey. And I would say the same on, to, uh, on the Turkey side, too. On, in the short term, the United States' tactical relationship with the YPG and Kurdish entities in Syria has taken the relationship uh, beyond the cliff. Similarly, Turkey's reliance on radical elements within Syria to initially topple the regime, but now working closer with the Russians, uh, essentially to carve out some sort of policy uh, of the future of Syria, has also uh, resulted in, in, in loss of trust between the two entities. Just the fact that Turkey is now in the process of deploying Russian-made missile defense systems has embittered the relationship beyond the turning point. So that's why I refer to it as, as a sort of slow Pakistanization of Turkish-American relations, because each step seems to be taking it to the next brink, where there might be no return from. And I, I understand that sounds a little bit alarmist, but it takes very long time to establish this trust. And at this point, it is it is less than negative and very acrimonious. It also seems like a wedge is increasingly driven between 
the U.S. Congress and between the U.S. executive branch on how to deal with Turkey. Um, And of course, that could change dramatically um, after we have a presidential election next year in the United States. Of course, right now in Turkey, there's not an election, I think, until 2023. I totally agree that it's difficult to read the tea leaves, but there is growing animosity. And I think that that wedge between Congress and the White House on what to do about Turkey and, and about the relationship with Turkey moving forward does portend things like a greater risk of sanctions being placed on Turkey if Congress is able to pull together some sort of veto-proof sanctions package. That leads me to something back to the issue of internal Turkish politics and how the economy plays in. Several things that have made headlines in recent months, and, and one of them is this idea of a potential split in the ruling party in Turkey a potential rebellion within the AKP party. Um, And part of that could be motivated by the perceived mismanagement by the AKP of the Turkish economy. How do you read what's going on in terms of the economy and the stress that that presents to the ruling party and how that impacts the the potential for a a split in the ruling party? Yeah, so that's an avenue which we've been watching for a while, I think, you know, the extent to which the economy has been sort of free falling in Turkey. So just for, you know, we could we could cite m- multiple metrics. But at one point in 2018, the Turkish lira had lost over 40 percent of its value against the US dollar. That's just one metric. And and, and also earlier this year, consumer price inflation had reached over 25 percent. Um, the public sector is so heavily indebted that uh, the private bank sector is thought to have over $20 billion, U.S. dollars worth of non-performing loans, which, you know, is unsustainable. So these are just some of the metrics. That is part of the reason that sort of supports the idea that Erdogan is mismanaging the economy uh, in order to essentially keep the economy afloat by engaging in populist policies in terms of monetary supply and and, and fiscal policy, right? Right. And the importance of all that is, is, well, he has been challenged for the first time by these threats of the party splitting, that he cannot hold the AKP together. And as a result of that, we've seen sort of tentative challenges put forward by some of his closest confidants, such as the former finance minister, uh, Ali Babajan, who's reportedly supposed to be establishing his own rival party that is sort of maybe fathered by the late president, Abdullah Gül, who's also president of Turkey, a close colleague of Erdogan, former prime minister and foreign minister and the architect of the AKP sort of liberal world outreach in the early to mid 2000s. And then another split party, which is headed by, which hasn't happened yet, but it, again, it's all rumors, former foreign minister Ahmet Davutoglu, who is kind of the architect of Turkey's new Ottoman foreign policy initiatives in, in, the, in the late 2000s. Now, what does this all say? Well, it says that Erdogan is, is in trouble. These rival parties, even if they have no chance of winning, it, it shows cracks and splinters within the ruling coalition. Um, what does that mean for the future? That's a big question mark and unknown. So this is where we get back to this notion of foreign policy and domestic politics interceding and getting um, entangled with one another. You know, one of the major things that we can say is that the Syria offensive that was just rolled out, you know, in the last several weeks was an attempt to put an end to all of this. You know, once Erdogan basically rolled this out, you have strong public support that galvanized behind it. It changes the nature of public debate and media debate because the media is 90% under Erdogan's control. Everybody's talking about this great patriotic operation in Syria to get rid of foreign terrorists engaged in trying to undermine Turkey's uh, security, right? 
it also, you know, imp- imposes upon the political opposition short-term support for the government. They have to. They've got no choice. They'll be demonized. But it also kind of puts to rest the challenges brought forward by the, these characters such as Baba Jan and Dabutul. I mean, for them to come out at this point and say, you know, we've got a much better plan forward. I mean, it's very easy, you know, low-hanging fruit for the, for the Erdogan government saying, you know, we have, a, you know, a, a national crisis and we all need to coalesce to so forget about your petty political interests. And so we've seen that quelled quite effectively right now. So Erdogan is still a master of changing the, the agenda of public debate and also galvanizing public opinion behind him whilst forgetting these economic difficulties. Yes, those difficulties are still there. They're not going anywhere. Nobody's talking about it. The TV airwaves have been blasted, pictures of tanks and, you know, Turkish soldiers going in, and blah, blah, blah. It, it, it all looks singularly focused around what Erdogan wants people to see. So it's very significant. Sinan, is there anything else that you want to share or something that you're thinking about the direction of Turkish politics moving forward? Yeah, so, I mean, you brought this up, and that's, I think it's an important point in terms of these, you know, possibly escalating sanctions and sort of uncertainty about where we think the United States is going to uh, maneuver in, in its relationship with Turkey and the Erdogan government. And that seems to me very, very unclear, right? Because we've just now seen in co-equal branches of government, Congress on one side and, and the administration on the other, seemingly having different ways to how to manage Turkey. On the one side, it shows sort of this unity and lack of pro- policy formulation as to how the U.S. government is, is looking at Turkey. At one level, you've got Congress wanting to punish Turkey because they're absolutely fed up with Turkey's sort of relationship and dealing with the United States. So I think that lack of congruence, that lack of coordination is interesting. If they roll out some of these threatened sanctions in terms of the sort of health bank sanctions, whatever comes out of the, the, the indictments of that, whether Turkey is rumored to be buying Russian fighter planes, what, what will happen with that? Will Trump uh, be mandated? Uh, will he actually comply with the, the letter of, of the law in terms of implementing sanctions imposed on him by the Qatar law, which gave him up to 180 days to defer it? What's going to happen with that? I think these are all unknowns on the U.S. side. There is a strong desire in Washington to punish Turkey and to make an example of it. And I don't think necessarily the Turks see the storm coming or are underestimating the will uh, and the and the prerogative of Congress to actually roll some of this out. And I think that could have a very damaging impact on Turkey's national economy, uh, as well as uh, public sentiment towards the U.S. In, 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 the, in the short to medium term. I agree that there could be a storm coming, and in a way that you don't see between Turkey and some of its other partners in the world. Um, one notable example would be the EU. Um, Turkey's exports the majority of them go to the EU. Turkey really needs that economic relationship with Europe. But Europe also needs Turkey in a lot of ways. And, and Turkey has been fulfilling this role of halting and slowing a lot of the migration flows that Europe uh, felt overwhelmed by in 2014, yeah. 2015. We've seen just this summer instances where the EU will offer Turkey more money for that initiative at the same time that it's discussing or implementing or, or putting sanctions on Turkey for other issues. So so the EU deals with Turkey in this really sort of dual track way um, that really shows the sort of wide breadth of strategic interests that are shared between the EU and Turkey, um, as well as the significant tension and tumultuousness within the relationship. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to watch this too, because if Erdogan's government essentially does what it's threatening to do, which is relocate and resettle several million um, Syrian refugees inside of Turkey back into northern Syria somewhere, right? Then the sort of notion that Turkey is dependent upon 
or, or Erdogan is dependent on some sort of goodwill from the EU for its sort of economic outlook, I think kind of disappears. Not in terms of substance. I mean, Turkey trades with the EU. Turkey has interest in reforming the customs union. It has, in terms of how it goes forward with trading with the EU, it has all these interests which won't be recognized, uh, realized, I should say, until Turkey establishes a more sort of collaborative and amiable tone with European entities. But in the short term, all Erdogan is interested in is basically in this tit-for-tat sort of um, brinksmanship with the EU saying, unless you give me what I want, then I can do X. And this really hasn't obviously uh, resonated well with the European authorities. And they've been hamstrung essentially uh, until, the, you know, until recent, maybe until, until, you know, until such time that um, Syrian refugees are resettled in Syria, simply because the one thing that kept them really taking more strong position against Turkey in terms of policy was European governments were essentially afraid of Turkey opening the border gates to allow these Syrian refugees to flow into Europe. Once that is lifted, then I don't necessarily see what, you know, what Erdogan can do to sort of, you know, really keep further punitive action uh, by the European entities against his government. But like I said at the beginning, right now Erdogan's just focused on the immediate, the now, you know, today, how do I essentially survive today? What what does tomorrow look like? Um, It's about regime survival. And a lot of this is lack of strategy, uh, lack of policy, uh, lack of planning of how to build and, you know, consistently maintain the relationship with the European Union. But instead, you know, how does it resonate in a soundbite such that people feel, you know, people feel at home gratified that I'm taking a strong and principled or what they would call a bold position against European unfair European demands on Turkey in terms of human rights, in terms of democracy, in terms of rule of law, etc., etc., right? Um the public opinion doesn't necessarily in Turkey doesn't care about what the Europeans think of that. They want to see a bold and, and strong leader push back against that. And that's exactly what Erdogan's given for now. Thank you so much for spending time talking with us about Turkey and the future of its internal political situation. Um, we really appreciate it, Sinan. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us for the Stratfor podcast. We'll include details on where you can find more about Turkish politics in the show notes. If you're interested in learning how Stratfor's geopolitical intelligence can help you know what's happening before it becomes news, be sure to visit worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Emily Hawthorne. Thanks for listening.